We're going to consider that passage together this morning as we um, continue our series or finalise our series, The Songs of Christmas. Uh, our practice is to look through a part of the Bible together uh, and consider what it says to us, consider what it, considering first what it said to the people um, it was originally written to and consider what it says to us. Well, the question I want to begin with is, is this question, is Jesus really enough? Would you say that this Christmas Jesus has been enough for you? You know, if you didn't get the gifts or the gifts you particularly wanted, was that cause for a tantrum because that wasn't enough? Did you go to the shops on Boxing Day to get the gift that you wish you were given the day before? Because it just wasn't enough. There wasn't enough to satisfy you on Christmas Day. Is Jesus enough to satisfy you at Christmas time? Do you sometimes want more? Do you sometimes want more? Not just at Christmas, but, but in life. You know, I think we can often live with this feeling that there's just something missing in life and we want something more. Was that your feeling this Christmas? Maybe that's your feeling now as you enter a new year. You think, I want something more. Is Jesus really enough? And I think we ask that question when we think at Christmas time because we think of the baby Jesus. And we think a baby, could a baby be really enough? Could Jesus coming to earth, a baby, be enough? Enough to reveal God to the world? Enough to rescue people from sin? Enough to reconcile everything to himself to make peace with us and God and us and one another? Is he enough to make the world right again? as we recognize the brokenness in the world, the things we've just prayed for. Is Jesus, is the baby Jesus, born at Christmas, really enough? And see, I think even if we say yes to that question, because we know the answer is yes, if we're Christian believers, I think we can sometimes still doubt, be tempted to think, well, no, there needs to be something more in my life than Jesus. He's not really enough. I need Jesus plus, whether it's some kind of experience or whether it's some kind of physical thing, I need something more. And we're tempted, I think, particularly in our secular age because of this concept that James K.A. Smith talks about. Even as faith endures in our secular age, believing doesn't come easy. Faith is fraught. Confession is haunted by an inescapable sense of its contestability. We don't believe instead of doubting, we believe while doubting. We're all Thomas now. Um, he picks up in this book, uh, picking up from an, another author, this idea that we live as if the roof is closed on the stadium of our lives. So we get this picture of you know, the, the stadium in Melbourne, I think it's Docklands, where there's the roof over the top. And we used to live in the world uh, through the centuries with this picture of we're part of a world, a grandstands around us, a field we're in, and there's more going on, and we can see it, and we interact with it, we can see the stars, if you like, the, the transcendent realities of the world. But our world today, for various reasons, has become a roof-closed world, and so we're, we're in the stadium, the roof is closed, and, and we have a hint that there's more going on, there's something beyond the roof, but we look up and there's, it just looks like a roof. We live in this imminent frame or this now, here and now reality and we've got rid of the transcendent. And so doubt for Christians is common, especially common because we're just not pushed to think there is something more. Is Jesus enough? 
It's no surprise that then we doubt that Jesus has power, that Jesus is good enough, or we might say, is, is he God enough, that his works have done enough for us to rescue us, to bring hope to this world, to bring hope to our lives. It's no surprise we think those things in this world as we live with this roof-closed reality. Now, that may not be your experience. You may know the roof is open and there is more to the world, but we often are pushed to think as if the roof is closed on our world. Is Jesus enough? Now, I think that's our temptation to think there needs to be something more, whatever that more is. It was particularly the temptation of the, the church in Colossae, which this letter that Paul writes is, is written to. It's a, a letter, as I said, from Paul to the church at Colossae, maybe 60s AD written. And this is an early Christian church, an early gathering of believers who are keen to follow Jesus as enough, as everything in their lives. And yet there seemed to be others that were coming in and saying, no, no, you need something else. You need a little bit more. This experience, this mystical belief, this whatever. Insert other belief there. And so this is 30 or so years after Jesus has died, and they're tempted already to think, no, we need something else. And that's the context that this song, this song of Christmas, this hymn, this Christ hymn is written into. It's a declaration of praise, a song of the Christ. The identity of the Christmas baby is expounded in this song. And as you look at your Bibles there, if you've got one in front of you, it might look like mine where it's just a chunk of text and I'm saying it's a song. How is it a song? Some Bibles will actually format this a little bit differently, recognizing that it was likely some kind of early creed or song that was recited in the early church. And it's about this Son of God, who is the Son, the, the Lord over creation, over life, and the Lord over new life. And it picks up those two themes through the song. The Lord over life, the Lord over creation, and the Lord over new life, which means he's Lord over death as well. Is Jesus really enough? The answer is, is yes, according to this. And this is the context of it. Immediately before we read these words, he has delivered us from the domain of darkness and transferred us to the kingdom of his beloved Son, in whom we have redemption, the forgiveness of sins. And then the very next verse, he is. Who's the he? The, the beloved Son, in whom we have redemption. And this beloved Son has a kingdom, which just even that concept blows our mind when we think often with that roof-closed reality in our minds. There is a kingdom, there is something greater, and Jesus owns it according to this passage. He's, he has brought us out of darkness into light to live as forgiven and free people. To live as forgiven and free people. And so this question, is Jesus really enough, is answered with a resounding yes. And so I want to do something a little bit different this morning. I want us to have a go at just unpicking this passage together having a look at some of the details in it, and I'm going to get you to do a little bit of work. I figure it's post-Christmas, you're all well-fed from Christmas, you've got your brains ready, right? Yep, yep, that's right. I'll, I'll, I'll just assume that that's right. I'm getting some shakes of the head over here. I want you just for a moment, uh, whether with, by yourself or whether with the person next to you, just to look at the words on the screen or in your Bibles, and just notice things that you might be called to notice in a Year 10 English class. Anyone remember Year 10 English? First year university English, anyone, anyone go there? Maybe go back to year nine English then, somewhere around there. Just notice things that you'd notice in that 
time and maybe chat to the person next to you if there's someone near you. I'll give you a couple of minutes to do that. I've given you some hints by the underlines of, of some, but there's heaps more there. All right, we're going to pick up on a couple of those things. Can, well, let's get a couple of answers to begin with. Think just things you see, whether it's something that's repeated a few times, a word, or whether it's a, a technical poetic term or something like that. You know, any extreme of the uh, English grammatical textbook. Anything there? What are we seeing? I can hear some chattering. I figure there's something. There's some repetition. Where's the repetition, Ken? Yes. So we've got the, this he is at the beginning, and then there's repetition of that idea in different ways all the way through where I've underlined there. Yep. Any other repetition? They're all numbered. <laughs> the, the verses, though, they're, they're not, the numbers aren't original. So, <laughs> yes, they are all numbered, though. That's true. Uh, Tracy? Yeah, so we've got this for by him, and then all things were created, verse 16, through him, for him. That idea? Yep. Give that a green one. You want to pick up the, the things or the everything? How many times was that mentioned? I can see a few, but I can't count them very quickly. There's one. Here's another one. Any more? 16 as well. There's another one. By him, all things, start of 16, yep. Oh, we've got one down in 20, Isaac, do we? All things. You got one, Joey? Joey's found one as well. I think it may be an apple rather than the passage. Oh, there it is. And there's a couple. There's a couple other things we might pick up on here. Um, does anyone know what a merism is? I wasn't very good at English. Anyone know what a merism is? No, not not a merism. Mer merism. Yeah, I didn't know either. Uh, this idea where it says in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, thrones or dominions or rulers or authority. Is it saying? just in heaven and just on earth, or just the visible and just the invisible, kind of, but it's really saying that extreme and that extreme, therefore everything in between. That's, that's a merism. So that's a tool that's been used, dominions or rulers. It's just saying this extreme or that extreme or this extreme, so therefore it's everything. 
Anything final here we pick up on in this passage? Anything else you notice about the text? One other key thing is, I'll highlight it and see if we can pick it up. There it is there. Firstborn, Jesus' firstborn over all creation and, whoop, I've done the different highlighting there, and firstborn from the dead. And they're really the two parts to the passage. Um, And so I want to pick up on some of these things as we look at the passage in more detail. Thanks for doing the work for me there. That's great. This every week. (laughs) Evie, can I get you to move back a little bit just so I don't step on you? That would be good. Thanks. Um, So this is the first idea, that he is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn over all creation. Image of the invisible God. This is like the title statement of this text, that he is supreme. And when you think of a firstborn, often we think of, you know, the first one to be born in the family. And in modern day, that doesn't mean significantly different things to, other, to uh, the second born or the third born. But in these days when this was written, that was the one who inherited everything. The firstborn was the inheritor. And so in a sense, they were the uh, ruling authority or the one who would, would own everything in the future on behalf of the, the, the family. And so that's what's picking up on here, that Jesus, this, this son, is the firstborn, the supreme one over everything. And he's supreme before all things, and for all time, forever. You get four ideas here. The image of the invisible God, firstborn over creation, this idea of an image bearer, which as we think back to Genesis, right at the beginning of the Bible, we read those words. So God created mankind in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. Image bearers, that's that's you and I. We bear the image of God in this way that we are called upon to image him, to reflect him out to the world. And yet this son is the image of the invisible God. So we image God, we do reflect him out to the world, particularly as we live lives which are more and more godly, but Jesus is the image, the one, the perfect representation. The next idea is this creator. By him all things were created, and then all these things. All things were created through him and for him. And so creation here, well, that's unlike us. We don't create in the same sense that God creates. This, is a, this idea is attributed to God as the creator. Genesis 1, God created everything, and yet here it's attributed to, to Jesus, the Son. All things created by him, through him, for him. The next is this idea in 17, that he is pre-existent before all. Which as you think about that, you think about your life, you think, oh, I've lived, you know, some years. Some more for some of you, some less for some of you, some years. Jesus is before that. Then you think back maybe to the family albums. You go back as far as photos went. You think, Jesus has lived, he exists before that. And then you think back to like the genealogy. Maybe you've done Ancestry.com or something. You've gone right back. Jesus exists before that, before all those possible things. But in fact, before 2,000 years ago is when Jesus came as a baby. Jesus existed before that. Right back to Moses, Abraham, Jesus existed before that. We see John 8, Jesus said to them, Truly, truly, I tell you, before Abraham was, I am. He, he just is. He wasn't created. He's pre-existent. 
and then all things hold together in him, which means Jesus is the sustainer, or we might say he's the grand glue of the universe, and he's good glue. He sticks everything together. I don't know if you've ever made a cake and forgotten to put certain ingredients in. I think there's a, a special chemical you can get if you don't use eggs, transglutaminate or something. Most people just use eggs. Have you ever made a cake and forgotten the eggs? Or a meatloaf and forgotten some kind of binding ingredient? And then you get it out and you get the night, and, and it's kind of just a, a mess of crumbs. Jesus is the glue of all creation that holds everything together. That's the claim of this passage, which means if Jesus is not present as the perfect image of God, everything crumbles. Everything crumbles. But you might think, well, isn't it kind of crumbling already? Isn't the world physical, physically kind of crumbling? Maybe you're thinking of yourselves in your own bodies, and you think, I'm kind of crumbling. Is Jesus sustaining me? Is he sustaining the universe? Maybe relationships in your world are crumbling, or, 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 or you fear they will, or they have. This is the effect of, of sin in the world of us choosing to reject God, that relationship, not imaging him perfectly, and therefore the effects of brokenness in the world. Not just the physical creation, but ourselves as well. And so we read uh, these descriptions of that from Professor Francis Spufford. So of all things, Christianity isn't supposed to be about gathering up the good people, shiny, happy, squeaky clean people, and excluding the bad people, frightening, alien, repulsive for the simple reason that there aren't any good people, except for Jesus. The fault line, as Chris Watkins puts it, runs through everything and everyone. The fault line runs through everything and everyone. There's brokenness from our rejection of God everywhere. We're out of relationship with God, which leads us to that question, is Jesus really the right kind of glue? Is he sticking the world together? Is he doing anything about this predicament that we find ourselves in? And our temptation, as we said earlier, is to say no, because we live with this roof-closed reality. There is nothing more is what we're told to believe. The next part of the passage addresses this. And he is the head of the body, the church. He is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead. So we saw that Jesus is first supreme over this creation, but he's also supreme over a new creation, over new life, which means he's firstborn from the dead. He, he, he is supreme over death. He's beginning of some, the beginning of something new, which leads us to that question of what is the something new then he's the beginning of? And the answer here is the church, which is really a resurrected people, a new creation people. Remember Jesus? He died but rose, bodily ascended, that's the format, that's the, the template for this something new, for the new creation and for our new bodies as well. A representation, a likeness, but also a difference, an eternality to it. And so because of those two things, because he's supreme over this creation and the new creation, in everything he might be preeminent or supreme. That's the claim of this song. By conquering death by bringing new life he's therefore supreme over everything we might ask though is that not the domain of only god himself is that not the domain of only god himself 
to be supreme over everything. That sounds like some kind of perfect deity. And the answer is, yes, that's right. It is the domain of only God himself. God will not share his glory with another. And yet in Jesus, we have one who is the very image of the invisible God, in whom God's fullness dwells. God fully dwells in the person of Jesus. As he came as a human and as he reigns now, Jesus is fully God and so he does what God wants him to do. He does what God wills. And that includes bringing all things back, reconciling all things. I don't know if you've thought about that verse before, verse 20, and through him to reconcile to himself all things. We think about our own reconciliation. God making us right with himself, maybe with one another, restoring the world. Here's here's that idea particularly that God is restoring all things, not just us individually. Maybe you've had a go, has anyone had a go at uh, kintsugi, I think it's called, a Japanese pottery art form where the, the pots sometimes are even deliberately broken but often collected as pieces and then turned into something better with this colourful, beautiful glue. And so it's this making of something that was old and broken into something that is better. God is doing that in the person of Jesus and even better than this. So it's not just fixed, but, but better. He's reconciling everything to himself. When we think of that idea of how is someone brought back to relationship with God and how is the whole world brought back, really there's two options. If you think about war, there's two ways in war to restore peace, isn't there? There's two ways in war to restore peace. Option one, or you have some kind of treaty, actual agreement with one another, and so you become one together relationally. You, you come back to restored relationship, and that brings peace. What's the other option? Well, it's to remove the animosity by removing... Well, sorry, removing the animosity is, is restoring the relationship. The other is to remove the enemy, to take away their power. And so, yes, there's peace because there's no more enemy. Restore order by complete victory. Verse 20 says, God makes peace by the blood of his cross. And so what God is doing in Jesus, he's offering reconciliation to people, restored relationship, removal of animosity, but he's also enacting the removal of the enemy's power. He's enacting the removal of the enemy's power. He's achieving victory. And we see both in the next chapter of the passage. And you who were dead in your trespasses and the uncircumcision of your flesh... God made alive together with him, having forgiven all our trespasses. Do you see that language? Restored relationship. By cancelling the record of debt that stood against us with its legal demands, this he set aside, nailing it to the cross. And then we see the other thing, removal of the enemy. He disarmed the rulers and authorities and put them to open shame by triumphing over them in him. Both are done by the cross which if you think about war and how victory is normally achieved, the cross is not normally the way, is it? A suffering saviour. And yet in this suffering saviour, God makes peace with the world and promises a removal of the enemy, destroying, disarming the rulers and authorities, putting them to open shame by triumphing over them in him. And so our choice 
in this world, whether we feel like we live with this roof-closed reality or not, is to accept that reconciliation that he's going to achieve anyway and be part of it now so that we get to be part of it or end up as those who are removed as his enemies. That's the choice that he gives us. And so effectively that, at verse 20, becomes the end of the song, answering this question, is Jesus really enough? And the resounding refrain is, yes, he is. Yes, he is. But there's this little commentary or a postscript to the song in verse 21, which really is what we are to do in response. And you who are alienated and hostile in mind, doing evil deeds, he's now reconciled in his body of flesh by his death. So he's talking to Christian believers in Colossae. In order to present you holy and blameless and above reproach before him, if indeed you continue in the faith, stable and steadfast, not shifting from the hope of the gospel that you heard, which has been proclaimed in all creation and under heaven, of which I, Paul, became a minister. We often think of the good news of Jesus in these very individualistic terms. And there's something true about we can be reconciled to God because of what Jesus has done individually. But this passage is pushing us to think of that as part of something much, much bigger. That God's plan in Jesus is actually to bring the whole world, make it all right, to reconcile it to himself. God in this supreme Christ is doing that work. And so we return to where we began. Is Jesus enough? Or do we need something more? This Christmas, has he been enough? Or do you feel like you need something more? Is that urge just to get more? To know more? To have more? To have more experience? Whatever it may be. Or is Jesus enough? For, for the Christians at Colossae, there was, uh, there's lots of language in, in the book about mystery and, and possibly experience, spiritual kinds of things that they wanted and others were promising to them. What is that for us? Maybe it's something more magical than what we experience. A greater experience of, of church, for example, or a message that sounds more magnificent to us than a dying Messiah. Here we see the temptation for the Colossians. Philosophy, empty deceit, human tradition. So for maybe for us, it's, it's particular meditative practices or abstinence from certain foods or prayers or chants or whatever it may be that is this more we, we, we want or think we need. But no, verse 9 of, of this chapter, chapter 2, in him the whole fullness of deity dwells bodily. In Jesus we have enough. In Jesus we have enough. Even now. We have enough to, to reveal God to the world in Jesus. That's what he did. To rescue from sin, to, to overcome the powers of darkness, to reconcile people to himself, to make the whole world right again. In Jesus we have enough. He is supreme. He is absolute over this creation and over the new creation. And so may he be enough for us as we enter 2024. May he be enough for us as we enter 2024. And if this message of Jesus is, is a new message for you this morning, I'd encourage you to think about it seriously. Is he enough? Do you have enough without him? Do you need him? The Bible's answer, I think, is yes, we all do. 
Let me pray for us. Our great God, we do thank and praise you for this supreme Jesus, the supreme Savior, yes, but the supreme one who is making the whole world right again, who is fixing everything and bringing us back to you if we trust in him and bring making the whole world right too. And so we thank you for him. And we pray as we enter this new year that it might be all about him and we might experience the fullness that he brings. We pray that for his sake. Amen.